This morning, I want to tell you about three things that I love, that I am so appreciative that these things are in my life. Those three things are number one, GPS, number two, assembly manuals, and number three, yard projects. I'm going to tell you what these three things have in common. Why? Why are these three things some of my favorite things in my life? Because they guarantee a finished outcome, right? If I follow the directions, then I will get something at the end. I will have arrived at something. So GPS, what does GPS do? Well, GPS gives you a series of tasks, like roads to look for, signs to look for, turns you have to make, exits you have to take. And if you perform all of those tasks, do you know what happens at the end? You arrive at your destination. In fact, uh, my GPS on on Google Maps, uh, I started to notice that it does this. And maybe you've noticed this too, or maybe I'm just crazy. I don't know. But when your GPS gets to like the last two or three directions after you've taken a long trip, the voice of the person giving you the directions or whatever it is on the GPS, it gets more reassuring. Now, I could be crazy. I could just be making that up, but I swear, like she's like, and the end is now arriving, and she says, in a quarter mile, you can turn right to your destination. Like, I was like, oh, I feel such relief. I'm now coming to the end of my journey, right? So, so that's GPS. I love GPS. It's good for that. I follow the directions. It gets me to the destination. Assembly manuals, Uh, what do they do? Well, they give you a series of tasks involving parts that you need and tools that you need and twists you need need to make and and pushes that you need to do to put things together. Uh, So you guys are, are probably thinking of Ikea right now. And for what it's worth, I love assembling Ikea things. It is one of my, yeah, people are like, you're crazy, but I enjoy this. Why? Well, what you do when you go to Ikea, so first of all, you don't buy what you walk out of the store with, right? When you walk through, you walk through the showroom where they show you the finished product, right? Because if they showed you a series of 15 cardboard boxes and put that in the showroom, you would never buy it. So what do they do? They show you the the finished product and you walk down and you gather up your cardboard boxes to take them home with you so that you can open up the assembly manual and follow step by step what it's gonna take to, to succeed at achieving that finished product that you're gonna put together. Right, so I, I appreciate this. They say, if you do this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and you don't mess any of it up, and it's very important that you don't mess any of it up, because if you, you, you get one step wrong, and you have to start the whole thing over, right? But if you don't mess any of it up, you arrive at the finished product. Yard projects, I had the joy of, on, on Friday, uh, being able to be outside, it was beautiful, I, I got a lot done for, uh, in our yard, my girls came out and helped me, um, so I had the joy of being able to work landscaping for two years, and if anybody's ever worked landscaping, then you know I'm being facetious when I say I had the joy, uh, so, so what that does though is like when, when I was a landscaper, I, I learned how to do yard projects really well. Like I learned the things that you have to dig out and the things that you have to put in and all of that stuff. And so, so when Andrea and I come up with ideas that we want to do with your, our yard, I, I can easily put together pretty quickly like the series of tasks that is required to, to put in this new thing that we want to put in. Right, so that, that occurs to me. So, so with the beautiful weather on Friday, I was able to perform the series of tasks and lo and behold, once I finished, you are able to see and appreciate the finished product, right? So, okay, all of these point to the idea that if you perform tasks, 
you will arrive at a particular destination or accomplish a particular thing where you can look and say, it is finished. So for what it's worth, I love accomplishing things. I love getting things done and to be able to observe at the end of the time, look at the finished product that has come about. And because I love this experience so much, when it comes to the Christian life, I need to be very careful. Because I love this experience so much, I need to be very careful with the Christian life. Let me tell you why. Because I love that so much, my temptation is to think that if I perform these certain tasks, if I read at these times of day, if I pray these prayers, if I go to these programs, if I agree with this set of doctrines, if I become adept at avoiding this set of behaviors, then I will arrive at what it means to be a Jesus follower. I will have produced the finished product in my life. I will have met my destination. That is the temptation that my loving of accomplishing things does to me because if I do this and this and this and this, then I will arrive. And this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian life because following Jesus is a direction, not a destination. Following Jesus is a direction, not a destination. We don't create a finished product. What we do is we believe in Jesus and then start participating in a process. We don't accomplish being good as Christians. We trust Christ as Lord and Savior and then engage in practices that foster growth towards goodness. We don't arrive, another way of saying this is we don't arrive, we pursue. Okay, so uh, like I said earlier, we are in this series on identity, right? Our identity of our church. We're looking at the three core values of our church. And so our core values are as follows. They are bless, belong, and become. So the last two weeks, we looked at bless and belong. If you missed it, I would really encourage you to go back to our website, renovateus.org. Go find our media page there and listen to the last two weeks so that you can understand where we're coming at with those. But um, this week, we were talking about become. And become is an acknowledgement that Jesus' invitation into life with him is an invitation into a process, an ongoing process. A process where he changes us and reforms us. A process where we die to ourselves and let his life be lived through us. A process where we devote ourselves to him and let his word renew our minds. Right? A process where we discover our true purpose And we start to live in sync with the one who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. So become, the word become says to all of us that none of us have arrived. That we all constantly need renewal. We all constantly need renovation. So I want to invite you to consider our logo with me for a second. If you could look at our logo, we're going to put it up here on the screen. Uh, so what, what you have, and this one's better because it's brighter, you can see the difference a little bit. But what we have is uh, on one side, you have, you have around the logo, you have one side with an arrow that goes down, the other side with an arrow that goes up. The one side with the arrow that goes down, you might notice that it is broken or made up of pieces. It looks kind of like a mosaic, right? This is representative of what is true of all of us, that because of sin, we are broken, right? And, But 
Jesus, who is at the center of all of this, invites us into life with him. And the way that he does that is he calls us to die. He says, die to yourself, right? And so as we die with Christ, what he does is he brings us to life with him. That's the other side of the logo. It lifts us up to new life. It represents wholeness, what he is trying to work inside of us. And these ideas are core to the identity that he has given us. He is calling us to be renewed on a consistent basis. So everything that we do in this church is designed to help us engage in this process of becoming, right? So if it's serving, you know what? Serving is a decision to set self aside and let concern for others become a priority for you. And not only that, but the practice of serving actually engages you in a process of transformation. Like, so that when you go and serve and then you encounter things that reveal your own brokenness and your own shortcomings because as you serve with people, you start to discover that there are still some broken pieces in there, right? And so you go and he shows you and then you get the opportunity to say, okay, how does the life of Christ bring renewal to what is currently broken? Right, so even the process of serving does that, but then, you know what, the, the crazy thing is, serving becomes increasingly more effective the more that Christ's life is lived through you. Right, so in all of these ways, serving is a way that we get renewal, that we become renewed. If it's a small group or a Bible study, you have truth observed in community that reveals to you what Jesus is inviting you to become. And then you know what biblical community does? It gives you other people who can help sharpen you and help you discover and call you into your becoming. And then it provides space where uh, your broken ways of relating to people can be exposed. And you know what? It's a safe place though. So that as it's exposed, you are in a community of people who regularly know how to repent to each other and forgive one another. Right? And then you have an opportunity for you to overflow the life of Christ onto other people as he is changing you. Like engagement in biblical community is this invitation to be changed. It is a process by which we are changed and our changing results in that thing becoming more fruitful overall. Right? Corporate worship is another example of this. Everything we do, we sing truth. We read truth. We listen to truth. All of this is from God. We receive and respond to invitations from Jesus to take another step in this process that he's doing inside of us. We get a reminder of all of those things which fuel the process. We train our souls to adore Christ above all things. Everything we do is built around this idea that Jesus is making us into new things. Right, that is, now, what the things that I just told you, that is by no means comprehensive of all that is being accomplished to help us become, but it is to say that we engage everything we do with an awareness that God is constantly seeking to do his work on us and to change us increasingly into the image of his son. Okay, so, so this morning I want to talk about that process. I want to talk about what the pathway, the direction that he's calling us in. I want to talk about what it looks like recognizing that we won't arrive until Jesus returns. Right? Like our arrival does not come before that point. So, uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 12. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, since we have such a hope, 
we are very bold. Okay, there are two questions that we have to answer in this verse. The first question is, what is the hope that he's talking about? The second question is, what are we bold to do? So let's look at the hope. If you look at back at verses seven through 11, what you have is the Apostle Paul describing the difference between two things. He's describing the difference between the old covenant, what is known as the old covenant, and the new covenant. So what is a covenant even? A covenant is uh, the terms of relationship between two parties, right? So you used to do what in ancient times was called cutting a covenant. You used to kind of lay out the terms of what your relationship of engaging with another person might be. So when, uh, when we talk about covenants in terms of the Bible, what we're talking about is the terms of God's relationship with his people, right? So, so, Then he says we're creating a difference now between Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant is in our Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It is, in fact, specifically the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And Paul says about that covenant, now that we have a new covenant, he says about that covenant, that covenant was a ministry of death. That's what he says. He says it sets up rules and procedures and processes requiring animal sacrifice. That this, in fact, was how Israel approached God in order to maintain their relationship with him. This was the tool that they used. They killed animals in order to be able to approach God and have him with them. And the other thing that the Old Covenant did is it revealed distance between God and his people. Right? The, the idea being that we are broken and we are sinful and we cannot be where God is. Everything, like there, there is us being, we are totally prevented from being able to enter into his presence unless he creates processes by which we can relate to him. And the processes he created uh, set up this person called the high priest, who was the person who would go into God's presence for the people one time a year and mediate with God for the people. Right? There, there were these sacrifices that were mediation of their relationship with him. God's people were constantly reminded every time they went to the temple that the wages of sin is death. And God's people ultimately had to worship him from afar because God was inside the thing called the tabernacle. And every time God's people approached him, they could never quite get to where he is. He has to stay distant from us. But the new covenant, come. Paul describes the the difference between these two things, and when we look at the new covenant, what we see is that Jesus fulfilled or took care of every single one of those processes and procedures that's taken care of, that's talked about in the old covenant, so that all of God's people would be able to be reunited with our creator, so that when we worship, he is not far off, but he is living in, among, and like within us. He is here, so that we can know what it is to be fully accepted into relationship with him. So old covenant kept us at a distance from God, but new covenant is an invitation to be with him where he is in his presence. New covenant says that Jesus, by dying and rising from the dead, invites us to a nearness with God where we can know him intimately and experience his goodness firsthand. He does not have to stay distant from us. So this is our hope, because he just talked about it. He talked about the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Our hope is in this New Covenant. 
Our hope is this, that we are welcomed freely into a close, loving, joy-filled relationship with our maker. That is our hope. Everlasting into eternity, it will be celebration of the fact that we have been reunited with one from whom we were estranged. So, that's hope. That's hope. So to understand then boldness, what he means by boldness, we need to keep reading. He says, we are very bold, and then he goes on in verse 13. Not like Moses. His point is to say, y'all, Moses was pretty great, but we got a better deal than Moses did, right? We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So just to explain what's going on here, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Moses, he was able to go near to God. He and his brother Aaron were actually the only ones who were allowed to go near to God. And when Moses came back from being with God, what the Bible says is that his face shone brightly. It was like uh, he experienced a high dose of radiation that was so intense that when he walked amongst the people, they would experience the radiation just bleeding off of him to the point where it would almost be oppressive to them. And so what they told Moses is, hey, Moses, your face is shining too brightly. Could you put a bag over your head? Right, let's put a bag over your head and then we'll, we'll save ourselves from the intensity of the shine that's coming from you. That's the veil that it's talking about. The veil that's over his face. He had to put a veil like to, to stop the oppressiveness of the wonder of the glory that he got to experience when he was with God. And so their distance from God was so significant that even if a person had been close to God, then they would have to create distance between themselves and that person who was close to God. Verse 14 goes on. It says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul is saying, Jewish followers of God, those who rely on the Old Covenant, the things that the Old Covenant says, he's saying these are those who haven't trusted in Christ, right? They encounter God as if he is still distant and far off. They encounter God. They relate to God as if he is someone for them to remain separate from. They relate to God as if he cannot be approached. And they fail to recognize the significance of what Christ has accomplished. So a veil lies over their hearts. They don't recognize what Jesus has done and they continue to keep God far off from themselves. 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Boom. That's it. That's our hope. Right, we don't need a veil. If we believe in Christ, then uh, that distance and veil and separation, all of that procedure that we read about in the Old Covenant, all of those things are done away with. There no longer needs to be separation. There no longer needs to be something that keeps us distant from God. We have full access to a God who is welcoming us into life with him. The veil is removed. If one trusts in Christ, then you have full access to him. Verse 17. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is all in line with the same things that he's been saying. Okay, so, so here he's reminding them. This, Christians, believers in Jesus, this is how close you are to God. The God whom you formerly had to stay separate from, the God who is pure and righteous and just and holy, the God against whom you at one time had rebelled, the God who made everything, he says, this is, this is how close you are to him. He's reminding them, when you trusted Jesus and recognized Jesus for who he is, we received the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, coming to not be next to us, not be like in the same room as us, but coming to live inside of us. Right? You can't get more near to God than that. Like that's as close as you could possibly get to him. And if God himself has indeed come to dwell in you, then what he's saying, he's saying, you have freedom now. You have 24-7, unrestricted, constant access to the God of the universe living inside of you. You know what? Because Christ's blood covered you, because Christ died, you now have the most free access to approach God, to speak with him, to experience his love for you and his constant grace towards you, and it's always available. Okay, so then, if all of that is true, what are we bold to do? Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. He's gonna finish that thought in just a second, but first let's focus on the fact that this is the thing that we are bold to do. This is what our boldness means for us. Paul says that we are bold to take advantage of the freedom that we have been given. We are bold to sit in the presence of Christ. We are bold to enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are bold to reflect on the scriptures and how they point us to Christ. We are bold to read God's word as God's voice with us in the moment, speaking to us personally. We are bold to approach God as a father who is welcoming us. We are bold to celebrate that God is with us now in this moment. We are bold to wonder at the mystery that was hidden from the ages but is now revealed in Christ. We are bold to consider the mercy of God in the cross of Christ. We are bold to own his resurrection as a promise of our own resurrection. We are bold to receive this gift as promises given to us personally. All of this is the glory of God. This is what he has accomplished. When we gaze at these things, when we enjoy relationship with him, when we draw near to him, what Paul is saying is that we are doing something greater than what Moses did when he sat with God in his glory and his face started shining. We are gazing directly at the glory of the creator of the universe when we enjoy these things. All of this is the glory of God. So then what is our boldness? Our boldness is this, to take full advantage of our freely acquired nearness to God. That's, that's what we are bold to do, to take full advantage of the privileges that he has given to us. So follow his line of thinking here. He starts with hope, and he's saying our hope 
produces our boldness. It does something to us. He's setting up kind of a sequence of events or, uh, or a direction, if you will. It does something to us. Our hope produces boldness, and that boldness does something. So verse 18, our boldness to, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. It says, all of us who do this, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So our hope produces our boldness, and as we boldly take advantage of the gift that we have been given, what happens? We become. We are being transformed into the same image. What image is he talking about? Well, what he's saying is it's the image that we gaze at. The image that we're looking at, the things that we're considering. Who has invited us into this freedom of relationship? It's Christ himself. As we look at the image of Christ and all that he has accomplished, as we consider Christ, and as we celebrate the relationship that he's won for us, what he's saying is, the more that we do that, the more we are transformed into his image. And Paul says all of this takes place Because God, who is spirit, is not distant from you. He is living inside of you. Okay, so, you know, other places in Scripture, what they do is they describe this transformation process, how this transformation process comes around, and that's what we're going to start to look at. What is the direction, as we consider what Paul has written here, what is the direction that is laid out for us to engage in as we seek to be people who are constantly being transformed by Jesus? Okay, before we consider that, I want to make sure that we're keeping track of the process of renewal that we are invited into, the direction that we're invited to walk in. So um, the process of becoming that I want to describe for us this morning, first, we have hope. We talked about hope already. That hope starts with you accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the only way that you receive that hope that's being given, right? If you have not done this, then your relating to God is not grounded in anything substantial, like, we, we know that Christ gives us access to God because we observed things and have heard about things and have listened to testimony about things that Christ has actually historically done, right? Our, our knowledge of what God is giving us, our welcoming into access with God is not based on something arbitrary or even an idea or a desire that we have in our own head. Our ability to access God is grounded fundamentally in things that were actually historically accomplished in Jesus. Right, because he actually historically performed miracles. He actually historically taught with authority. He historically established a new covenant. He actually historically died on a cross for sin and actually was buried in the ground and actually historically rose from the dead. All of those things show us that what he was accomplishing actually take place. So only through faith in him are we given generous, free access into a relationship with God in which we receive forgiveness and grace and peace and the joy of being reunited with our creator. So if we've trusted him, then what we need is we need to keep being reminded of the hope, 
right? We need to keep being reminded of what it is that he's accomplished. We need to coming, be, keep coming back again and again to the things that he's done for us. Okay, so that's part one of the process. Part two of the process, his boldness that he creates in us. I'm gonna tell you to abuse your relational priv- privileges. Now, uh, abuse implies misuse, but I want you to go with me for a second. Um, the first century Christians, they celebrated and reveled in and boasted about the access that they had to God, right? What did they do? Well, they spoke with God. They expressed a nearness to God. Indeed, they spoke of how God himself indwelled each of them. They read scripture and prayed to God in a very personal way, not in a kind of like scripted way, but in a way that says we have a relationship with you, we're talking to you, we're conversing with you. They spoke to him as they would speak to another human being. They spoke to him as if he was right there, because he was. So why do I say to abuse these privileges? Because to the first century Jews, the way that the Christians expressed their spirituality was scandalous, was inappropriate. And at, like at every level, they could not wrap their heads around people who could so freely treat God as if he was just there to relate to them. To them, the things that they did was, were blasphemous, and they considered these things that the Christians did abuses of the privileges of knowing God. So when Paul talks about boldness, he's saying, you know what? We are freely doing all the time what they are unable to do, what they are fearful to do, right? And, and so he's saying this to the extent that it would be as if, he's saying like, make it appear as if we are abusing the abundant privilege of being able to know God. So when Paul talks about boldness, that's what he's saying, right? This is something that you have been freely given. And he's telling them, revel in your relationship. God is near. Draw near to him again and again. Because you know what? There is not one thing that is preventing your access to him. Jesus makes you clean and you can approach, right? Did you sin yesterday? Did you sin this morning? Did you sin in what you thought as you walked through the door this morning? You know what? You have, there's nothing right now preventing you from free, full access to God. Not one thing. We are made clean and welcomed because of his blood and we are safe and at peace with him with no impedance between us and him. So, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're invited to interact with him, to open scripture and encounter his words speaking to us personally to show us the character of the one who loves us, to show us the kind of relationship that he desires with us. We're invited to meet with him through the, in, like in the most mundane of moments through prayer, right? where we pray to him not as one who is distant and far off, but as one who is with us in the very moment, in the present situation, actively meeting us in that place. We're invited to meet him in his people, the family of God, those in whom he lives and through whom he works and speaks. We're invited to see him in their stories and receive relationship with him through them and be sharpened by the gifts that they share. And in all of these, we draw near again and again and again and we revel in our nearness to him. And Paul says that as we do those things, we are 
beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. And he says that as we do that, what happens is that we are being transformed. Okay, so those are the first two pieces of this process. There are three more pieces of this process that we are going to consider. And I've spent most of my time this morning really making sure that we're very clear on these first two pieces. Why? Because if you try the last three pieces without the first two, the only thing that you will accomplish is moralistic behavior modification. You will make an attempt to be a good person, thinking that church and Christianity is built around making yourself a good person, and you will strive in your own power to change yourself, and that is not the life of Christ. That is not renewal. It is from a place of our secure relationship with our creator, grounded in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it is from that place only that the Holy Spirit begins to transform us into the image of Christ. And here is how that transformation takes place. So step three of the process. Step three is discovery. Where as you relate to him, God reveals life that he wants to bring. Okay, so, so you experience and live out parts one and two, and as you do that, something similar to what is described in Romans t- chapter 12 will start to take place. So Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Romans chapter one, or chapter 12, verse one describes is parts one and two of the process that we are working through right now where we are invited to live lives that are wholly devoted to God, reveling in the gifts that we've been given that we do not deserve, and we live that out. And as we live that out, verse two happens. Verse two says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. His point is this, because up to the moment that you received and trusted in Jesus, you've spent your life living in the world and you are still in fact living in the world. You are inclined and shaped to think like the world thinks. You don't yet recognize the things that God wants. You don't yet know how to recognize the things that are life and are death. But as you revel in the gift that you've been given through word and prayer and Christian community, you know what's going to happen. God will show you what is good and true. He will help you discover the things that he wants. He will help you understand what is good and acceptable and perfect. He will help you see the things that he desires to do. So I want to I share one example, and we'll kind of use this example to filter through the rest of them. One, exa- one example of how this has worked itself out in my own life. Uh, so first, I had to uh, remove things that were preventing me from regularly celebrating and enjoying my relationship with God. So it's first worth it to say, as God invites you to revel in your relationship, there may be current things in your life that are crowding out the space for you to be able to revel in that relationship. And it's actually of first importance that you clear out space to be able to enjoy your relationship with God, to revel in it, to celebrate it, right? Okay, so uh, that thing for me, 
I'm gonna tell you, video games, poured myself into, self into them all the time. Filled up so much of my time with uh, gaming that, that it crowded out the possibility of everything else. And so for a season, what I had to do was say, I just have to get this stuff out of my life so that I can have space to be able to revel in the relationship that I have been given with my creator. Okay, so, so that was the first piece. But then, so now we're talking about the thing that he actually showed me and started working on. So he started reshaping the way that I thought so that I could more easily recognize what in my life was out of alignment with the things that he wanted. All right, so one of the first things that he showed me was that I, as I had developed in the world's way of thinking, I had grabbed onto and held onto a great deal of personal insecurity. I cared too much what other people thought about me. And it would get to the extent that it would cripple me and it would steal my joy. It would choke the life out of me, causing me to turn other people into objects that I needed approval from instead of images of God to be related to and enjoyed freely. So there, he showed me through this process of me getting to know him and relate to him and reveling in my relationship, he showed me there is a problem here there is something that I want to be different. So then, the fourth piece of the process. Die to self. Kill whatever restricts life. So so as I discovered this, as God was gracious to reveal to me this issue in my soul, it was challenging, right? But God showed me these things in a safe place because while I was trying to find security in what other people thought of me, as I was living in relationship with him, you know what he was showing me? That with him is the most secure place that I can be. That in Christ, I have the love and approval and welcome of the maker of the universe. And so with him I have all that I need. And that was a safe place for him to show me that in these other places, you have a bit of insecurity that you need to deal with. And so, because he showed me that, I knew that it was safe to die. Right, because it's only from that place of security that you're going to believe that it is actually safe enough for you to die. And so what did I do? Well, I decided to take steps that said my security was in him. I decided to get, uh, first of all, more outspoken and open about my faith with my friends. Eventually, what that led to is me writing letters to all of them, inviting them to believe in Jesus. And then then I decided uh, another thing. I decided that when I messed up with others, that I was not going to be afraid of taking ownership of my failures with them that I was gonna own up to it, that I was gonna confess the thing, and that I was gonna actually repent with those people with whom I had failed. I decided that when I encountered the pain of letting others down or disappointing them, that what I would do is spend time in prayer and scripture letting God remind me of where my identity is and where my security is. All of those decisions were decisions to die, to die to people's opinions of me And God is constantly now putting me in situations where I have to continue dying to people's opinions to me. Okay, so that's the death. The last piece of this process, number five. Be renewed. Let Christ live through you. So in the place of what dies, Jesus brings 
life. So I've noticed, like over this period of time, and this is just with this one thing, where Jesus has taken something broken in me and done something with it. Right? I've noticed over this time that I am better able to listen to others. Because I'm not worried about what they think of me, I'm just honoring them as an image of God. I notice that I am better able to articulate my own faith to other people. I've noticed that I am more welcoming and hospitable to other people because I'm not spending all this time worrying about what they're thinking of me. I've noticed that I'm more willing to encounter uncomfortable moments with other people. That I am more able to have hard but necessary conversations with other people. Why? Well, because I'm reveling in my secure relationship with God and I've learned to die and he has been changing me and starting to live his life in this part of my life that had been dead for such a long time. I'm more able to see and relate to others like he would see and relate to them because of how he is and has been changing me in this particular area. Right, so his, as you die, and as you rest in your security with him, and as you look to the community, and you look to the word, and you look to prayer, he begins to bring his life out of the places that you're willing to die. And that's walking in the spirit. That's what the Bible describes as walking in the spirit. That's what it looks like for us to become. And our life, this side of eternity, is a continual pressing in to that process. So that if you could just take the last three pieces of that process that are grounded in the first two, you just keep recycling through the last three pieces of that process where God shows you something and you learn to die and he starts working out your life and then you do it again. He shows you something and you learn to die and then he lives through you and you do it again and again and again and this is the pathway that he has given us. Not a destination, but a direction. so that more of Christ's life might be lived through us. Okay, so what? So what, I only have one so what because almost the entire sermon was so what for you today, so you can just take that with you. I have one so what and it maybe is the most important one for some people in here this morning. Hear me. Moral improvement apart from Christ is of no eternal good. It's commendable. I want to commend you if you want to be a better person. It is a commendable thing to want to be a better person. But at the end of the day, your decision to do that in your own power is a work of pride and self-importance. Because you know what? After you finish the process, it only ends up being about you and what you are able to do. And in the end, it accomplishes nothing. You might say to me as I say that, that's not fair. But it only seems unfair because you think you deserve something for the good things that you've done. As if, if, like, if you accomplish enough moral good, then you will somehow get to a point where God should owe you something. God will never be in your debt. Your own good works will never show him how good you are and how much you deserve. So, so what am I really trying to say here? I'm trying to say that a Christian 
who experiences the kind of transformation that we're talking about. A, a transformation that could be observed as a moral transformation, as a change in behavior to some degree. A Christian who experiences that, they do not end up with Christ in eternity because they've learned to do good things. In fact, depending on their starting point, a Christian may end up doing far less good than somebody who spends their life being concerned with social justice. I want to tell you that. Like, you may see far less observable good from the life of a Christian than you see in the life of some other person who decides that they want to do good and prove themselves. So the only reason that we get into eternity is because we've trusted the one who can get us there. Right, it is only receiving the gift of eternal life in Christ that enables you to draw near to God. Your moral improvement will not draw you near to God. Only Jesus brings you near to God. So I want to implore you this morning. Jesus is offering you a gift. Receive the life that he wants to start working in you right now. Revel in the free relationship with God that he's extending to you. If you have not done it, place your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you that I am gathered here with brothers and sisters who have learned what it means to celebrate the things that you have accomplished. Lord, not to say something of ourselves, but to say something of how great you are because there is no amount of good that we could do to deserve being forgiven, Lord, that the, the, the wrong that we've done, the separation from you that we've accomplished, the way we've lifted ourselves up in pride, it only shows again and again and again that we were intent to be set against you. But you decided that we should be set free, that we should be welcomed into your presence. And so you did what was required. You sent your son to die for sin on our behalf, in our place, so that we could be freely welcomed into the joy of relationship with you. Jesus, thank you for this gift. If there's anybody in this room who has not received this gift, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would press yourself upon their hearts, that they might be open to receiving the things that you are extending. And Lord, this morning as we continue in worship, would you help us to revel and to celebrate these joyous things? This is how you make us into the people that you're making us into. We celebrate our relationship with you. We enjoy it. And then as we do that, you show us the ways that we need to die. And then you live your life through us. You are the one who is resurrecting us. Jesus, thank you. We need your life. If we are ever to be a, a compelling example to our community, to the world around us, of, of the life that you are offering, then we need your life to be lived through us. So Jesus, I pray for those of us in this room that are believing, that we would not waste another moment being satisfied with the death that is in this world, but that we would give ourselves over to full, joyful, relationship with you and that in that place you would bring about rich life.
Jesus, thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.